Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris and it's really good to be back with you again podcasting. I am continuing the series on the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Today I'm going to be in Daniel 8. Basically what this series is, is trying to figure out what the seven-headed, ten-horned beast in the book of Revelation is. And as I explained in the previous sections, on the one hand, I know that it is a reference to the Antichrist in some sense, probably also to Satan in another sense, depending on how we deal with the Revelation 12 passage. But there is a lot of details within the exact nature of the heads and the horns and all the reasons that five of fallen one is and how that relates to Revelation 13 and does that at all relate to the Daniel 7 passage. And if we could figure out those details, I believe that we would know a lot more information about things like the rise of the Antichrist probably or uh, various other sort of national mechanisms that would be happening in the end times. I think that um, from what I've seen, very few people have put all these pieces together. A lot of people have theories and, and say confident things about it, including myself in the past. Um, but just about every theory that I've heard, well, every theory that I've heard has some kind of problem, at the very least, with meshing it, uh, the Revelation 13 concepts with Daniel 7. And for that matter, they have trouble um, lining up their Revelation 17, seven-headed, ten-horned beast, with the Revelation 13 uh, seven-headed, ten-horned beast, not to mention their Revelation 12, seven-headed, ten-horned beast. So just about everything I've tried breaks down at some point. So the concept here is to go back to the basics, start with all the relevant passages, go over them and see uh, if we missed something. So today I'm in Daniel 8, and you may have noticed that I've skipped Daniel 7 in favor of Daniel 8. And the reason that I did that is because I think Daniel 8 offers us some interpretive keys that will help us when we try to figure out Daniel 7. So doing a, a study in Daniel 8, I think, will help us to understand Daniel 7 a lot better. And one of the examples of that, I suppose, is that in this vision, so in the previous vision in Daniel 7, he has a vision of four beasts, a, a, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a diverse beast. And when the angel interprets what those beasts are, the angel just says, these are nations, uh, you know, kings, I believe he says, that will arise out of the earth, etc. It doesn't tell us which nations they are. So it leaves a lot more room for speculation. In this passage, there is no debate about what the ram and the goat are, which gives us so, uh, some firm footing when we try to deal with the ways to interpret maybe some of those other beasts. So for example, he sees this vision I saw in the vision and uh, I raised my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him and there was no one who could rescue uh, from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which, I'd been, which had been standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came uh, up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, and we're going to stop there because that's where a sort of a transitional phrase probably to eschatological matters happens, uh, but also about Antiochus for sure. But we'll get to that in a minute. So that so there's this vision of a ram and a goat. Later on, as is the case a lot in Daniel and other passages, the angel shows up to interpret this vision in which the angel tells us what these uh, first part of this vision are. Um, he says, let's see, uh, as you saw the ram that we had two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. 
So we know what these uh, images are, and that helps us because even back in Daniel 2, we knew the head of gold was Babylon. That was said explicitly. But no one knew who was going to defeat Nebuchadnezzar at that point, so we didn't really know what the chest of silver was. I mean, we know we call that Medo-Persia today, and then and we call the bronze belly uh, Greece today. But Daniel didn't mention it, nor did the angel call it out by name. They were just, here are other... Uh, kingdoms or kings that will come after you. So this is really the chapter where we are told where Medo-Persia and Greece are ever specifically named, and that's important in light of the rest of this story. One of the reasons I think it's important in terms of an interpretive key is here we're told that for some reason the Medo-Persian should be represented as a, 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 a ram, and Greece should be represented as a goat. And, you know, a lot of times when people try to interpret other places in Daniel, specifically Daniel 7, where no specific kingdoms are mentioned, we're just a, a lion, a leopard, uh, you know, a bear, and so on. Most people's interpretive vision for that uh, that section is, is, is basically all about what they think those animals represent. So this is particularly important with a lot of the modern uh, theories that people say, well, lions are, are Britain and, and whatever. They'll say something, bears are Russia, th that kind of thing. And even those that maybe don't take more of an extreme view of that and just take really run with the animal thing are people that want it to be the traditional view, i.e. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then are kind of forced to figure out a way in which the bear has anything to do with Medo-Persia or the lion has anything to do with Babylon. And I talk about that in my commentaries about how a lot of those kinds of things break down. For example, and I'll talk about this probably, well, I'll talk about that when we get to Daniel 7. But in this passage, we're told that Medo-Persia is represented by a ram and, and Greece as a goat. And very few people will make a big deal about that in terms of try to find some reason that Medo-Persia is always associated with a ram. It just almost seems random. Um, there is one thing in the uh, New American Commentary, Stephen Miller says, according to um, Amias Marcellinus which is in the 4th century AD. Uh, he said the Persian ruler carried a gold head of a ram when he marched before an army. So a kind of dubious reference from Stephen Miller, well, well after the a fact to kind of say, well, you know, that Persians somehow had anything to do with rams. But Stephen Miller later on in Daniel 7, when it comes to now he's saying that the, the Medo-Persians are represented by a bear, he says it's because, you know, uh, the, of their great size and fierceness in battle. It's a lot of shooting from the hip with commentators when they try to match the animals with nations. And that uh, Greece here is represented as a goat in Daniel 8. Again, we absolutely know it is. I I've never really heard a really good commentary about why that should be. You know, what in the world does goats have to do with Greece? And again, they need it to be a leopard back in Daniel 7. So the reason I'm saying... I like Daniel 8 as an interpretive principle and what that interpretive principle means in light of the what the animals to nations represent is such that it may be more or less random and it's important not to read too much into it is kind of what I take for that aspect. You know, that, that when you come to Daniel 7, you see things represented as leopards. Because I have tried very hard to do studies on every single one of these animals in Scripture. Uh, leopards and lions and whatever. And try to, that's one of the reasons it really broke down in trying to understand Daniel 7 in the traditional way. That it's basically just a retelling of Daniel 2. And reading all, all these commentaries that say, well, lions always represent Babylon and, you know, the Ishtar Gate and whatever. And, and it just always breaks down in terms of, the Bible doesn't say that, in other words. Making too much of these animals is a big problem. And I think that we are giving, uh, given sort of proof of that to be cautious with that concept here in Daniel 8. So that's number one. The second interpretive principle that we get from Daniel 8 that I think will help us with, with Daniel 7, actually, I believe, is an argument in favor of the traditional view, which is, as I said, you know, I had a really hard time trying to find biblical proof that, you know, the, the, of things like the bear is uh, lifted up on one side, it has three ribs in its mouth, it's told to go out to conquer. And, you know, it, it's like, what does that mean? I need to find references somewhere in the Bible. It should interpret that. And if we're going to have the traditional view 
and the bear, in this case, be Medo-Persia, then there needs to be some help, biblically speaking, to interpret some of those qualities. So it's less about the animal and it's more about the qualities. Raised up on one side, three ribs in its mouth, uh, its conquest. So, so at least with the bear in Daniel 7 and the leopard in Daniel 7, it gives me that biblical basis to interpret that. I think I explained in the last podcast that I really don't like having to do kind of interpretations that go off Bible. You know, I've got to tell you something about history and, and whatever. I don't like that. And most of the time, you don't have to do that. Even when you're talking about history, you can prove it from the Bible alone. And so I really, I can't, I can't ever be sure about something unless uh, it's coming from the Bible. And the and Daniel 8 gives me some ground to stand on in that regard. So, for example, in Daniel 7, we're ta- told this bear is stood up on one side. And again, it's supposed to be Medo-Persia. One possible way to understand that that it's it's raised up on one side now is the unequally yoked nature of the Medes and Persians. So in history, the the Medes and Persians kind of co-ruled the Medo-Persian Empire, but the Persians were very much uh, um, the the dominant force in that, and it did come up, you know, later than the than the Medes. But that's what this passage in Daniel eight is saying. It's saying, uh, I raised up my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. So you have at least a possible way to say the Bible has confirmed the unequally yoked nature of the Medes and Persians, which may translate to the bear that is raised up on one side. You see where I'm going with that? Now I have some sort of biblical basis in that interpretation, at least for the bear. Not with the lion or the diverse beast being Rome or anything, but I have that at least with the bear. And in continuing, I think I have more with the bear because it says... Um, in Daniel 8, that this this ram charged westward, northward, and southward. So it gives three cardinal directions that Medo-Persia conquered. Again, we know this is Medo-Persia because the angel tells us so. Conquering three cardinal directions. And that is, and I go through this in my commentary, describe the commentaries in history that Medo-Persia did, in fact, uh, 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 conquer. And there were those three cardinal directions. Is it possible, it's not a perfect thing, but is it possible that's what the three ribs in its mouth are? A lot of commentaries don't do that. When they talk about Medo-Persia and the bear, they say the three ribs are its three notable conquests and name some things. I talk about that in my commentary too. It doesn't work. It breaks down. It's just a guess. But I think if we take this as the as the possible referent to that, the three ribs could be the cardinal directions, less than specific conquests, which is problematic, as I discussed in the commentary. Uh, so that's a possibility of the traditional view. The, the last one that may give us some help here is it says that no beast can stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Again, this is talking about Medo-Persia at this uh, time, which of course was at this amazing empire uh, started by Cyrus the Great and, and most of the conquests were early on with Cyrus or whatnot. So arise and devour much flesh is what Daniel 7 says about the bear beast. It's what the bear is told to do, arise and devour much flesh. Here, Daniel 8 might give us uh, some reason to believe that the devouring of, the fl- of much flesh is about the great conquest of Medo-Persia, which is validated by it saying none could stand before him, uh, no one could re- be rescued from his power, he did as he pleased and became great. Not a perfect one-to-one match, but at least it, it's a biblical stamp that says Medo-Persia gained a lot of ter- territory and was very, very uh, great and d- did it as it's pleased, i.e. arise and devour much flesh. Very similarly, the events described in Daniel 8 about Greece, this goat, um, seem to correspond with the leopard in Daniel 7. So that again, that's a traditional view. The bear in Daniel 7 is Medo-Persia, and the one that comes after it, uh, Greece, is represented by the leopard. This leopard has four heads, it has wings. Um, so I argue in my commentary that we need to pay more attention to those concepts, that the not necessarily what the leopard represents, but what does a leopard do and the, what do the wings represent? And I argue that it probably means a fast-moving kingdom of some sort. 
And I believe now in Daniel 8, we have confirmation that A, Greece is biblically considered a fast-moving nation. And I believe that we have biblical association with the four kings coming out of Greece, which are Alexander's four generals. Um, so the four heads make sense in that scenario. Well, well let me go through it. So um, the Bible, I think, puts a stamp on the idea that Greece was a fast-moving nation. Uh, Daniel 8 uh, verse 5b, and I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. So, you know, that's maybe a reading a little bit too much into it, but I believe the concept of without touching the ground could speak to this goat's speed. Now, at this point, both here and in Daniel 7, commentators will wax uh, historical about the fast-moving nature of Alexander's kingdom, and I can't argue with that. That seems something that is not a, you know, it's not a, a historical choice to describe it that way. Alexander conquered most, if not all, of the known world before he was 30 years old. So, uh, and, you know, his armies were fast, and they go through all that kind of stuff. So I think here we at least have some biblical idea for maybe understanding why in Daniel 7, if it is Greece, it's either spoken of as a leopard, but certainly why it might have wings uh, in that case. And then, of course, the four heads of the leopard needs to be validated biblically. Does the Bible actually speak of Alexander's four generals? Um, because that's what people say it is. And of course, it does um, in Daniel 8. It describes um, that that these four horns come out of the Alexander the Great horn. It says, as for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, this is the angel's interpretation, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And that makes sense, of course, on every level. That's exactly what happened. It's unambiguous in history. Uh, Alexander the Great on his deathbed says, "Give his who should we give your, your kingdom to? Give it to the strong, which led to an incredible war between his four generals, ultimately resulting in four separate empires, uh, the Ptolemaic Empire, the Seleucids, the Greece, Grecian Empire, and what, Thrace, I guess, was maybe the other one. I can't remember at the moment. But yeah, four empires then now are biblically stamped to say that what came out of the Grecian empire should be considered biblically to be understood as his four generals. That's now a biblical stamp that says that is how it happened. And so the leopard with four heads and wings seems to be validated here by Daniel 8. So if we wanted to interpret Daniel 7 in the traditional way, this is the avenue to do that through Daniel 8. And so that's why it's important for us to hit this first. I, now, it doesn't give us any information about Babylon or anything, but we'll get to that when we get to it and see if the problems, because there are a lot of problems with interpreting that in the traditional way, if they are outweighed by the solutions that it causes. Okay, so now it gets a little bit complicated because in verse 9 of Daniel 8, in the vision section of this, it starts to, at one sense, definitely be about Antiochus but in another sense, definitely be about the Antichrist, I'm, I'm also convinced. So the question really is, how much of each should we take from this? I think it's a traditional kind of near-far fulfillment prophecy, but it has a twist in that I think that it is more about the near than it is the far, which is different than a lot of near-type prophecies. So anyway, let's read from verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn. Out of one of them means out of one of the four generals, or or I guess kingdoms, one of the four kingdoms that resulted of Alexander's empire. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of hosts, and, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. It will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary, and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. I will also read the interpretation from the uh, angel, 
and starting in verse 23, where it says, and at the latter end of their kingdom, that is the four generals, at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgression transgressors have reached their limit, a king with bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not only by his power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So first, let me start with the conclusion. I'm going to say at the end of this that I think all of this has a lot to do with the Antichrist. And in fact, the language of this seems to be sort of exclusive to the Antichrist, but we can be absolutely certain, as we'll see in a minute, that this also must maybe even primarily be about Antiochus. So it seems like it's talking about Antiochus with language that is meant to be understood as eschatological, and in fact, a certain amount of this fulfillment, if not a perfect one-to-one fulfillment, is eschatological as well. But that doesn't take away the Antiochus nature of it. There's a lot to parse out here, so let's just start off with the basics. For those of you that are new to this, a very quick thumbnail of Antiochus. He was one of the four rulers of those four Alexandrian empires. He was a descendant of one of the early generals. He ruled over the Seleucid Empire. Which, and the Seleucid Empire was the one that had control over Israel. So he was sort of the, the boss of Israel uh, because it was under his jurisdiction in the Seleucid Empire. And he had some successes in his life. He did a lot of you know things that made uh, prosperous stuff. He had some good battles-ish. He defeated some stuff in Egypt or whatever, but mostly he wasn't that great of a conqueror or anything, just mostly as part of the, the ongoing wars that these four generals had. But it started to go bad for him later on, sort of in his career, and he kind of butted heads with some the upstart Roman uh, thing, and he basically wasn't that great towards the end of his career. But he takes a lot of that uh, frustration out on Israel. In fact, on a particularly egregious defeat on his way back to his home, he has to go through uh, Israel, and that's when the abomination of desolation happens. He sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, which is, if you know how Jews feel about pigs, it's a really bad thing. It, it defiles the temple, uh, he, he, and it's not until 2300 evenings and mornings later that it is restored, as the prophecy says here, which is we're going to see where, where Hanukkah comes from. So he does that. He also kills 100,000 plus Jews in this purge. He hates the Jews. They hate him. Uh, he has this great killing of, of Jews that's also sort of part of the reason that he is a good type of Antichrist, that he does the abomination of desolation, and he has a great uh, killing of the people of God. So there, there's that kind of aspect of one of the reasons why this may bleed over into Antichrist language as we talk about Antiochus, because he is a one of the, the most obvious types of Antichrist in Scripture, certainly in Daniel. But this is where we start to run into some questions and some problems. I'd say one of the first ones is uh, out of one of them. We know Antiochus is in reference here. We're going to see that as we go. But when it says out of one of them, talking about the four generals, uh, the four horns will come this guy. And that certainly works with Antiochus, right? He is uh, the king of the Seleucid Empire, and it may be true that the Antichrist will come from one of the four, these four empires as well. But if so, it causes some interpretive problems with Daniel 7 and Daniel 2. Uh, it kind of depends on if this is taken chronologically or not. If so, then we are to understand that the Antichrist kingdom in the last days is pictured here with no mention of Rome. Okay, so back in Daniel 7, the traditional interpreters have it like Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then the final beast is Rome slash the revived Roman Empire. So the great beast with the teeth and it has the ten horns. They see that as a sort of two-stage beast. The pattern in Daniel 8 would combine Rome and the revived Rome and just call it the Antichrist beast of the last days. So it would be something like Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, 
last days Antichrist empire. Completely skips the near, far, dual fulfillment of Rome altogether. Rome just out of the equation. It's just Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, last 70th week anti, uh, Antichrist empire. So that's what you kind of have to do if you understand Daniel 8 to be purely chronological. Because, and again, I think that it's logical to see Daniel 8, 9 through uh, you know, say 12 as definitely Antichrist language, but then the out of one of them came a little horn means that you've got to have out of one of the four heads of the leopard in Daniel 7, which means that all the entire beast of Daniel 7 is the last day's Antichrist empire. No Rome, no revived Rome, just the last day's empire. It's 10 horns on the head or, you know, talking about kings or whatever. And and I don't actually have a problem with that so much in Daniel 7. I'm not sure if that's the way I would take it uh, just yet, but it would be very difficult to understand the traditional view that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are the exact same things head of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and the revived Roman Empire, it would be very difficult to make the legs of iron and uh, feet and toes of iron and clay be simply a reference to the last day's Antichrist kingdom. There it breaks down. I can't see that being the case in the way that's interpreted, which is fine with me. That's the way I sort of feel anyway, that Daniel 2, Daniel 8, and Daniel 7 are written for different reasons and different purposes. Uh, primarily, I see Daniel 2 as a prophecy of the Messiah and his uh, when he will establish his kingdom, which is why messianic expectations were high in Jesus's day. I see Daniel 8 as primarily for uh, uh, the Jews that would experience this incredible event of the abomination of desolation, the first abomination of desolation with Antiochus Epiphanes, and to give them hope that, in fact, it would be restored. This is an interpretation that I think you can really hang your hat on because, as we'll see, Jesus endorses it to some extent. Um, then we have Daniel 7, which, quite frankly, I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. Probably more to do with the Antichrist than any of these passages. The language is rock solid. Revelation just copies and pastes Daniel 7's Antichrist language, not like it like it does anywhere else. It takes that and says, this is the Antichrist. So it's more focused on the events than anything else. I am a little bit rambling here. Let me get to the, the point. Just a quick note. I often say that the Antichrist will probably be from Greece or somewhere in that area like Macedonia. But this passage is not the reason why I say that. I, I believe that this passage, if taken to be a dual prophecy of the Antichrist and Antiochus, not just of Antiochus, would mean that the Antichrist must also come from one of the four geographical empires of Greece. That is to say, the Ptolemaic kingdom of Egypt, the Seleucid empire in the east, the kingdom of Pergamon in Asia Minor, and then Macedon, or, or basically Greece. So but the reason I say that the Antichrist probably comes from Greece or Macedonia is more, more based on Daniel 11, 36 through 45. 36 is where pretty much everybody agrees it's now transitioned from Antiochus fully to the Antichrist. Now it's stuff talking about the Antichrist only, not Antiochus. And it refers to him just as the king does this, the king does this, but he's fighting against the king of the north, the king of the south. He goes off and hears rumors about the east. So, and also in context, he is the king of the west, um, so, which is in context, the king of Greece or Macedon. So if you take that view that in Daniel 11, the after verse 36, he, the he is the king of the West, the king is the king of the West, then you get to have that, plus you get to have that jive with uh, Daniel 8 here when it says he comes out of one of them, i.e. out of one of the four uh, uh, Alexandrian ge general empires. It also tends to sort of validate that a little bit in the rest of, of Daniel 8, 9b, where he grows exceedingly great toward the south east and toward the glorious land, all things that are mentioned specifically in that Daniel 11 passage. So so equating these two passages is not just a, a, a shot in the dark. Some And some people will say, well, out of one of them came the little horn, means that he must be from the Seleucid Empire, much like Antiochus was. And I have 
uh, some sympathy for that. I mean, it, I mean, it kind of sounds logical that if they're exactly the same, that is to say Antiochus and the Antichrist, then maybe the Antichrist should come from uh, uh, the Seleucid Empire as well, which is the king of the north. But that would then cause problems with Daniel 11, 36 through 35, where I would argue that the Antichrist in that passage, the king is the king of the West, not the king of the North. Now, there are some that challenge that too. I think it's a lively debate that you should be aware of. It's called the two or three kings theory of Daniel 11. I talked about it in my book, uh, The Islamic Antichrist Debunked, which you can read for free in various formats. I also posted the entire audiobook on this podcast feed. But, um, but I think that the, it's abundantly clear, and this is the way the vast majority of scholars see that, is that the Antichrist is the king of the West, not the king of the North in that passage. In any case, there's nothing in the text of Daniel 8 that would say you need to have the Antichrist, if in fact this is a dual prophecy, uh, be anything but what it says, just one of the four. It's not giving preference to one of the directions in this particular passage, it's just one of the four. Okay, so let's move on to the 2300 evenings and mornings situation. And this is actually one of the reasons that I keep kind of harping on the idea that I think this primarily has to do with Antiochus Epiphanes and not the Antichrist, because the 2300 evenings and mornings, in my view, lines up perfectly with Antiochus, but I can't think of a single scenario in which it would make sense with the Antichrist. So while I think that this passage definitely has to do with the end times in some aspects, because as it's talking about Antiochus, it certainly talks about it in Antichrist language, things that the Antichrist will do, but its primary, primary purpose is to give a prophecy about Antiochus Epiphanes that it's debatable how much will actually have to do with the Antichrist. And I think, and I could be wrong about that. It could be that I just don't have any, the, the answer to how this could have to do with the Antichrist. So let me give you the long version of the uh, 2300 quote unquote days prophecy. And this will be from my uh, commentary on Daniel. It should first be noted that the word days does not appear in the original Hebrew language. The words that do appear are evenings, which is in the Hebrew Arab, and mornings, which in the Hebrew is boger. The fact that some Bible translations decided to translate these two words as days, despite the absence of the Hebrew word for day, i.e. yom, has caused some trouble. Why? Well, for a few reasons. The first is that the so-called is the so-called day-year theory. That is the idea that when you see a day in prophecy, it is okay to assume that a year is meant. This has been the basis for several date-setting movements in the past century. And really, you'd be surprised how much this particular prophecy had uh, to do with our current cult situation. Uh, William Miller was the guy who started it. Uh, I think it was 1844. Jesus was supposed to come back. They call it the Great Disappointment. Out of that movement came the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, basically theologies that said, hey, uh, Jesus really did come back in 1844, except for we, we didn't, you know, he did do it everything we said was true, but now let's develop a theology around our wrongness. So that's essentially what has happened with the JWs and the Seventh-day Adventists. There are a lot of problems with this, besides the fact that the word day does not even show up here and is therefore not even a candidate for a day-year prophecy. I would suggest that in every single case that a prophecy gets interpreted within the Bible itself by another person in the Bible, it is interpreted literally by them. In other words, in a non-day-year fashion. Days are days and years are years in prophecy according to biblical figures. For example, Daniel in the next chapter realizes that based on the prophecy written by Jeremiah that the Jews will get out of captivity after 70 years of exile, Daniel would have not calculated this properly if he used any other method of interpretation other than a literal one. If we look at all the prophecies in the Bible that have come true and applied a day-year theory to them, like the prophecies of the Messiah, they would cease to be accurate. So a day-year theorists are arbitrarily selective as to when they apply this hermeneutic, and as far as I know, this is the only place where they deem it necessary. There is a much better way to understand this prophecy, but we must go back to the idea of Arab and Boger, the Hebrew words for evenings and mornings. Why such a strange way of saying days, if indeed days was meant? Every day there were two sacrifices at the temple, a morning and an evening sacrifice. This is described in Exodus 29, 38 through 43. 
the angel was simply answering the question, how long will the daily sacrifices be for God? The answer is given as a number of as the number of sacrifices that would be actually missed, i.e. 2300 evening and morning sacrifices will be missed before the sanctuary will be cleansed and they can start up again. If the angel was saying that there would be a total of 2300 mornings and evenings sacrifices missed before they would resume again, then it would be a total of 1150 days. 2,300 total sacrifices divided by two sacrifices per day equals 1,150. There's a good debate on this issue, and I believe that in part the reason there is confusion is because whether 2,300 days are meant or 1,150 days are meant, there are some problems with perfectly matching either of those dates up to Antiochus or the Antichrist, for that matter. Let's review some historical facts first. Antiochus comes back from an unsuccessful campaign in Egypt in a rage, and on his way home to Syria, he had to pass through Jerusalem. This is when the defilement of the temple occurred, which included a religious idol being put in the Holy of Holies, etc. This ultimately caused a rebellion of the Jewish people, led by a prominent family called the Maccabees. They ultimately defeated the Greek forces, cleansed the temple, and reinstated the daily sacrifices. We know the exact dates in which the sacrifices were ended by Antiochus's armies, and when they were re restored again by the Maccabees. This is a matter of historical certainty. Uh, First Maccabees, though not a canonical book, is widely agreed by scholars to be historically accurate, and its dates match other data we can gather about this event in Chapter 1, verse 54, it says, quote, On the 15th day of the ninth month of the 145th year of the kingdom of the Greeks, King Antiochus set up the abominable idol of desolation upon the altar of God. The termination is established in the same book, 1 Maccabees 4, 52 and 53, which says, And they arose before the morning of the 25th day of the ninth month of the 148th year, and they offered sacrifices according to the law upon the new altar. But now here's the problem. If you do the math on the number of days, which, uh, which should have come up to 1,150, if our theory is correct, it actually only comes up to 1,105, which is 45 days short. This has led many to say things like, well, perhaps the sacrifices were stopped sometime before the idol was set up. This, I suppose, is possible, but we have no record of it. And it would seem to run contrary to certain occasions in Scripture when the abomination of desolation is mentioned as being the reason that the sacrifices are stopped, not because of some preceding event. Uh, this at least seems certain of the end times version of the abomination of desolation, such as in Matthew 24:15. This almost but not quite interpretation has left others to pursue the possibility that perhaps 2300 evenings and mornings really was just speaking of 2300 days. In other words, it would be saying uh, 2300 groupings of evenings and mornings. This camp then needs to try to find uh, the fulfillment that lasts about 6.3 years. They will say that from the assassination of the high priest until the cleansing of the temple by the Maccabees is right around six years, though they will usually admit not exactly 6.3 years, and that this general period should be viewed as the entire Maccabean, quote, tribulation. This view has major problems in that it has to take the assassination of the high priest or some other event as the starting point, even though the ending of the sacrifices is explicitly said to be the starting point by the angel. Both views are lacking as they do not come to a literal perfect resolution, which is especially troubling since the dates of the events in question have been so well preserved for us. The answer to this conundrum, I believe, is simple. We're using the wrong calendar. Most of these calculations are using a 365-day calendar when, as we will see, that's not always the way the Bible renders time. We will discuss calendars more as we look at Daniel 9, and we see that the Bible can, as we will see that the Bible can be shown to, to conclusively to use at least three calendars at different times for different reasons. But for right now, what we need to know is that the Bible often uses a 360-day calendar to render prophecy. You may be familiar with the idea that the book of Revelation gives us the last three and a half years of the famous seven-year period in various formats in several places. For instance, in Revelation 13.5, it speaks of 42 months. Revelation 12.6, it's 1,260 days. 12.14, it's a time, times and a half a time, or three and a half years. All of this gives us certainty that we are dealing with a 360-day calendar in that prophecy, which deals with the end times abomination of desolation. We'll show more examples 
of the Bible's use of the 360-day years and some thoughts as to why it does that in chapter 9. But for right now, I want to focus on the Greek world at that time and show that it too used a 360-day calendar as I, as I think the Greek way of keeping time here will help us solve the problem. Herodotus, the so-called father of modern history, has or father of history, has a number of quotes about the Greek calendar that lets us know that there are 360 days in a Greek year. But he also has quite a few quotes that tell us that the so-called inter, about so-called intercalary months. This is an extra month thrown in at different times in order to keep calendars on pace with the seasons. He said the following, quote, take 70 years as the span of a man's life. Those 70 years contain 25,200 days without counting intercalary months and a month every other year to make the seasons come around with proper regularity, and you will have 35 additional months, which makes which will make 1,050 days. Thus, the total days of your 70 years is 26,250, and not a single one of them is like the next in what it brings. I will quote Fred P. Miller for calculations based on these numbers. Quote, using the Greek calendar, according to Herodotus, and assuming that the year's 146 and 148 were intercalary years, we come up with the following calculations. 915-145 to 925-148, the dates given to Maccabees from the desecration to the cleansing, is three years and ten days. Thus, the math sentence following the Greek calendar, which was in use at the time the prophecy was fulfilled, would be 3 times 360 plus 2 times 30 plus 10. Let's diagram it. 3 times 360 equals 1,080 days. 2 times 30, that is 2 intercalary months, would equal 60 days. And from the 15th to the 25th equals 10 days for a total of 1,150 days. So in other words, if each year is 360 days and there's an extra 30 days every other year, which Herodotus said there was, then all of this fits. It would seem to be uh, a perfect fit. The problem is solved. Also, it should be noted that this event uh, of the cleansing of the temple in history, now remember all of this happened during the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where we don't have really any writings. That's when this Maccabean revolt and Antiochus and all that stuff happened during that sort of time before the New Testament time began, but after the Old Testament books were closed, if you will. The intertestamental period, all this happened during which we're, where we get this idea of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the Feast of Dedication. It's mentioned in John 20, where Jesus attends that festival and therefore seems to validate that, that festival. And that's important because it's validating the celebration of the restoration of the temple from Antiochus based on this 2300 evenings and mornings idea. So there is a sense in which we know for sure and can be very, very confident that this idea is definitely talking about Antiochus. It definitely occurred. The Bible seems to put its stamp of approval on this prophecy being about Antiochus, at least for sure. The question is, how does this apply to the Antichrist? And the answer is, I can't see a way. Again, we're talking about a 1,150-day period. Uh, students of prophecy will know a 1,260-day period, i.e. a seven-year period based on a 360-day calendar, is the 70th week of Daniel. That seven-year period is referred to as seven years, 1,260 days. There are other days associated with that seven-year uh, period. For example, in Daniel 12, he talks about a 1,290-day period and a 1,335-day period, which is, if you take the seven-year period, there's a 30-day period after that, and then an additional 45-day period. Um, Pre-Rathers, which, as far as I know, are really the only ones that have really mapped all this out. I don't know if it's a conflict with some pre-tribbers just can't do it because of some of their 
uh, preconceived thing or whatever, but at least in the pre-wrath world, there's a lot of mapping out of what's happening in the Bible during that 30-day period and 45-day period. Uh, they call that the reclamation period is the 30-day period and the 45-day period is the restoration period. The 30-day period would lead up, would basically be most of the bowls of wrath happening and then culminating in Armageddon, which would happen at the end of that. The 45-day period, so-called restoration period, would begin the setting up of the temple, probably the sheep and goat judgment and some other things happening during that period. Again, you can see a lot of pre-wrath mapping of that out. And there's actually more information about that than you would think. Uh, the whole concept of like Jesus seems to be leading the 144,000 and, and, and others kind of through this this path of Basra and, you know, uh, shielding them from the earthquake in Mestri Babylon and claiming his throne well before Armageddon in that uh in that period culminating. And yes, he, the, the seven year period is when that culminates and he establishes and, and restores Israel. But there is yet the reclamation period left with the bowls of wrath and the, uh, so it's still hard. It's harder to understand that you mean to, you mean to tell me that he's restored Israel before the bowls of wrath and Armageddon. Cause I'm going to basically argue that's the problem with this, uh, other prophecy, this 1,150 day prophecy. But at least in that case, there is, the prophecies in Zechariah, prophecies in Revelation that seem to point to that very clearly. So yeah, the idea is that, well, what do we do with this 1,150 day period? That's 110 days short of just the seven year period, let alone the, the, the 30 day or 45 day period. We're 110 days or 3.6 months uh, short of even the restoration of Israel, which, you know, puts us in the, in the trumpets and, and, you know, a lot of bad stuff is happening, let alone the fact that mystery Babylon hasn't been defeated. Uh, Armageddon hasn't happened. And what needs to happen here is the cleansing and restoring of the temple, which just makes no sense in anything that I can think of that the temple just can't be cleansed before mystery Babylon is, is, is destroyed or, uh, Armageddon happens, especially as I consider a lot of those things are very Israel specific. Israel is not in a, in a good place at that point. Uh, they're giving gifts, celebrating the death of the two witnesses. It's not, it's not a great place to be at that moment. So I don't know. Um, I suppose you could make a case and say, well, you just need to add this to your doctrine about the Antichrist, that somehow or another, the temple is restored 1,150 days after the midpoint, that is to say 110 days before the end of the seven-year period. And, you know, I could, if I was forced to, I could make a case for it. I could say, well, I mean, I personally believe that the Ezekiel temple, the millennial temple, will not be in Jerusalem anyway. I think it has to be some something south of Israel, probably Ramat Rahel or, or somewhere down there. Uh, just based on Ezekiel's sort of mapping it out. So I could say that maybe some temple project is going on south of Jerusalem that gets restored, but that's not the same temple. And, you know, to call it as restored and, and, and cleansed is not quite exactly right. So I don't know. I don't know. But I would say that it doesn't make a lot of sense with anything else that we know about the Antichrist. So it's very, and that's in light of it making what I think is perfect sense in light of Antiochus. So do you see what I mean there? I have something that I can hang my hat on with Antiochus in this prophecy and say, yes, this, this 2300 evenings and mornings makes sense. It's validated over and over, it seems like in the Bible. However, applying this to the Antichrist requires me to well, do some do some speculation and funny business. So, so that's where where I'm at. Let me now say though that I'm absolutely convinced that this must have something to do with the Antichrist in the last days. Not necessarily the 2300 evenings and mornings things, but certainly nine through twelve. Uh, let me just read nine through twelve. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the hosts of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled. It became great, even as the prince of hosts and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over it uh, to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper as well as the uh, interpretation 
A king with bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and people who are the saints. But by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper into his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great without warning. He shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. So I believe that phrase alone has a lot to do with the Antichrist, maybe even more so uh, about the Antichrist. And combine that with the angel's basically explicit interpretation that this has to do with the last days. Phrases such as, this: the vision refers to the time of the end in verse 17, in the latter time of indignation, uh, for at the appointed time the end shall be in verse 19, seem clear and ambiguous indicators as as well as the obvious sort of references to things that you can pick out, you know, throwing uh, stars to the ground and, and these kind of things that we immediately think of Revelation 12 and other places being destroyed, but not by human hands. These phrases that are uh, very antichrist specific, not just in Daniel, but in other places. So we have really good reasons to believe that at least this information is about the Antichrist. And basically these verses that I just read are things that we kind of know about the Antichrist. And that's something I want to say about this. And this is why I think it's important to recognize this about Daniel 8. I've heard Chuck Missler say this before, that in a lot of ways, every doctrine in the Bible is preserved. Its signal is preserved. Like you could take a page out of the Bible and it would be okay because that doctrine would be explained other places. It's very hard to uh, to take just one thing and have it be the only thing. And I think that's the case with Daniel 8. If you ripped Daniel 8 out of your Bible, everything that is talked about about the Antichrist here, with the exception of maybe one thing, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, is said other places. This is information that we know about the Antichrist. We don't need Daniel 8 to know any doctrine about the Antichrist that we didn't already know. And I guess I'll just go ahead and say the other thing that I think is not mentioned is the idea that he will understand riddles or some versions say dark sentences. Uh, that I don't know is said anywhere else. So there is that one thing that I would say maybe is just here in Daniel 8. But for the for the most part, everything else that's said here, um, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. Well, it says that in Revelation 13, doesn't it? It's the dragon that gave him his power. Do you see what I mean? Everything is, is said somewhere else. So I think it's okay to take a sort of, as I'm doing here, a wishy-washy view on Daniel 8 and say, uh, I'm not sure how much of this applies to the uh, Antichrist or to Antiochus. I do believe that both of them are, are in view. But as I said at the beginning of this, I think the reason why Daniel 8 helps uh, one of the reasons that Daniel 8 is a great prophecy, besides the fact that the people that needed this prophecy really needed it, that is to say, those that lived through this time, that, that uh, but another reason for our purposes in trying to figure out the seven-headed, ten-horned beast is because of the clarity that this uh, prophecy gives us in interpretive keys and other passages, and I believe it's going to help us when we get to Daniel 7. Okay, so we will see you next time. Thank you for sticking around. Go to BibleProphecyTalk.com. You can also see the new movie that I've made called Seven Pre-Trib Problems in the Pre-Wrath Rapture, available on YouTube. You can also go to the website, Seven Pre-Trib Problems. Thank you very much, and we will see you next time.